Hi everybody and welcome to the fourth unofficial guide to medicine podcast. My name's Lauren and it's really great to have you all listening in with us. So today is our last episode in our mini-series on anything orthopaedic. Our special guest, as he has been for the last three podcasts, is Mr Christopher G, a consultant orthopaedic surgeon with an interest in medical education. He is the educational lead for the West of Scotland Deanery Trauma and Orthopaedic Rotation, an honorary senior clinical lecturer at the University of Glasgow, and author of the Unofficial Guide to Medicine Radiology series. Today's podcast is going to be an OSCE revision podcast, so we'll be covering the basics of an orthopaedic OSCE and common mistakes that students make. So let's get to it. Well, welcome back, Chris. Uh, this is our last podcast in our mini-series on trauma and orthopaedics. It's um, good to be back. Thank you very much for having me. So this podcast is going to be all about OSCE revision in terms of orthopaedic OSCEs, and some common mistakes that students might make. So Chris, is there any general OSCE advice that you picked up on over the years for all OSCE stations, not just orthopaedic? So I guess the simplest way of thinking about OSCEs is to think of them as a driving test. So, you know, when you do your mirror signal manoeuvre, you're always taught for your driving test to make a really big point of the fact that you're looking in the mirror rather than just a simple glance. So I think it's the same with any OSCE. You need to make it really clear to the examiner exactly what you're doing, why you're doing it, and you know, make a performance of it. And by doing that, they can have no doubt that you're ticking all the boxes and that will get you all the marks that you need to pass or perform well, or whatever it is you want to do. So you, know, you kind of have to practice that kind of technique of being, you know, making it a bit of a performance, if you like, when you're when you're in the OSCEs. That's how I kind of got through OSCEs at, at medical school, and I did a lot of practicing. My poor, poor wife, who I actually met in first year of medical school, you had to go through all the different examinations, all the different OSCE stations. We practiced and practiced, and it was the same after medical school as well, with you know my membership exams to the Royal College and then fellowship exams to the Royal College, and it's always the same thing really, and getting into that routine will help. I mean, obviously there's a lot more simulation nowadays as well. So it's the same thing with simulation as well in terms of making it a real show of what you're doing. So hopefully you'll find that a helpful advice. Yeah, I agree with you. I think if you can get yourself into a good routine with it and so you know what you're saying and you ask those key questions and you can remember them every time. I think that's a really useful piece of OSCE advice. It's uh, worked for me anyway. (laughs) What do you think is the most important thing to be successful in an orthopaedic OSCE? So I think the thing that I remember from medical school is you learn chest and cardiac examination and the abdominal examinations first. So you get very good at uh, inspection, palpation, percussion and auscultation. And then the orthopaedic examinations do tend to come a bit later down the line. So they then seem like they're an additional thing on top of what you've already learned that you need to then learn as well. And so there is a, a slight challenge there in terms of making sure that you, you know, still have that same flow. And I think as a result, orthopedic examinations stress people out. But the reality is, is if you look, feel and move, whichever part of the body you're examining, you'll be fine. And while there are a million special tests and see someone, you know, an orthopedic surgeon like me teaching you about all these different special tests, at the end of the day, you've got to remember that to pass the OSCE, all you need to do really is look, feel, move and show some understanding of the principles of examination. 
I mean, in, in a cardiac examination, for example, you are expected to be able to recognize between the diff different murmurs and what they mean and go into quite a lot of detail in that. But in, in reality, in orthopedics, while the history and examination may make it clear that the patient's got arthritis or so on and so forth, you know, the, the examination is only part of it and there are lots of investigations that are required as well. Really, the, what I'm trying to say is don't stress out about it. Just, just practice the look, feel, move. Make sure you pick up most of the sort of things along the way that you're meant to do. Um, obviously, um, the unofficial guide to Oski's book goes through it in detail. But if you have a structure and you show a safe structured approach to your Oski, you're going to be absolutely fine. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, look, feel, move is a, a classic thing that's always been told to me. But what am I, what am I looking for? <laughs> that, that's a very good question. Well, obviously, it depends a little bit on the part of the body that you're examining. But generally speaking, with orthopedics, you're going to be looking for uh, any swelling, uh, any scars, any deformities, any erythema, any wounds. And mostly it's pretty obvious if there's a major problem. And while the ins and outs and the intricacies of each deformity, you, know, you can suddenly find yourself maybe slightly daunted by what you're trying to describe, you know, if you can pick up the general general gist of what's going on, then that's, that's plenty for medical school for sure. Another thing to mention is muscle wasting as well, which can be a sign of a neurological issue, but often actually in orthopedics, it's a sign of disuse. So if you know, they have a painful uh, knee, they're not going to use the knee so much and their muscles may waste. But there are obviously rarer conditions that can cause uh, neurological problems that sometimes present to the orthopedic surgeon. So, yeah. yeah, and in terms of feeling, what, what should I be feeling for in an OSCE? So there are uh, obviously a few things um, and it does depend a little bit. So uh, some joints you can feel for an effusion. The, the knee is the classic example of that where you um, empty the fluid out of the suprapatellar pouch and then you feel to see whether there's a patella tap or you can do a sweep test where you try and move any fluid that may be in the knee from one side to the other and back again. But uh, so feeling for an effusion is important. You can feel the temperature. So is it warm or is it warmer than the other side, which could be a sign of inflammation. Obviously, septic arthritis is something that you'll probably come across in your learning at medical school, which can present with patients very unwell and occasionally, you know, needing surgery to wash out the infected joint uh, to obviously make them well again. So if the knee's hot or, you know, then that's a sign of uh, septic arthritis, you'd want to palpate all around the joints in a systematic way, identifying areas that are sore. So obviously if you put your whole hand on the front of the knee and the knee's sore, it's going to hurt. But what you really need to know is it the inside of the knee, is it the outside of the knee, is it the front of the knee, is it the back of the knee? So you need to be quite specific when you're examining different parts of the body in terms of understanding where exactly it's sore for the patient, because that does make a difference in the diagnosis. And then other things that you can feel for are things like crepitus, which is a sign of arthritis. A classic, again, is the knee where you put your hand over the patella and flex and extend the knee. And you're feeling for a grinding sensation, which would be in keeping with, with knee arthritis. But you can feel crepitus in the hands and in the, in the elbow as well. Other things from a generalized medical school point of view you may palpate for would be Things like nodes, so Hebridens, Bouchard's nose and the fingers or rheumatoid nodules you may palpate for. So the usual lumps and bumps type thing that you might look for. And again, you could palpate or feel for any um, generalized swelling uh, one side to the other. Brilliant. And in terms of movement, what should I be doing with moving the joint? 
obviously you need to understand you know what the movements are that each joint does and they're all obviously different so you know the the knee has a fairly simple range of movement in that it goes straight and you can bend it whereas the hip has a much more wide range of movement because of the nature of the joint being a wall and socket joint so the hip you can flex you can extend you can internally rotate you can externally rotate you can abduct and you can adduct Um, and so while there's no you know specific movements that you must do for every joint because every joint moves differently it is worthwhile just understanding the way each joint can move so that when you're then asked to examine them you make sure you you tick all the boxes so the shoulder again is a ball and socket joint so it will move again with flexion extension abduction adduction internal external rotation whereas the elbow is a hinge joint it can flex and extend with the addition of the forearm um, giving pronation and supination if that makes sense yeah it does thank you so much i think that's going to be really useful for our listeners. Do you mind going through a GALS examination as well? I think our listeners will really appreciate that. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. And a GALS examination is something that is obviously a very nice way of of demonstrating that you do have this understanding of, you know, how to do a generalised musculoskeletal examination. And while it might get daunt, might be again be daunting because you're trying to examine the entire musculoskeletal system, perhaps in you know seven to ten minutes, depending on the length of your OSCE station. What you've got to understand is it's a, it's a screening test, so you're not really looking to you know come to an exact diagnosis or do you know some complex special test of a part of the body. What you're trying to do is have a generalised examination of the patient that will allow you to then identify where a problem may be and then you can focus in on that with further examination in the future. And so often with the GALS examination there are a few questions that you you may ask at the beginning which would be things like do you have any pain or stiffness in your muscles or your joints or your back and then to get an understanding of how that might be impacting the patient so the severity of the condition you could ask them simple question like you know do they have any difficulty dressing themselves or difficulty you know getting out the house or walking up and down stairs these sorts of things and these sorts of useful questions will give you an idea of the scale of the problem without having to ask you know 20 different questions to understand it in more detail and then when you move on to the gals examination the first thing you're going to look for is the gate so that's the g of the gals and Put it simply, what you want to do is you want to make sure the patient's appropriately exposed and if they have any walking aids then obviously offer them to have that walking aid, you don't want a patient falling over on you, and get them to walk away from you, turn around and walk back towards you. And while sometimes it might be tempting to get them to do it over and over again whilst you're trying to work out what you're, you're seeing, if you've practiced it a few times and got used to what different gait patterns can look like with a little bit of detail, then getting them to just walk the once will normally be enough. And what you're looking for is, you know, how quickly are they walking? So are they walking really slowly because it's really sore? So um, we talk about the cadence of the gait. So they got a fast cadence or a slow cadence, for example. And then you would obviously mention if there was any limp in that gait. And then, you know, there's obviously a huge number of causes that can affect the gait. So they can walk um, with a limp because they've got a short leg or they can walk with a limp because they've got you know, a sore hip, knee, or foot, or ankle, or it could be related to spine or neurological issues. 
the Trendelenburg gate is quite a classic one and I'd certainly recommend watching some YouTube videos of the Trendelenburg gate just to get an understanding of what that is and exactly what it looks like. And um, the reason that they have that is because their abductor muscles about the hip have stopped working. And so when they stand on one leg, on their bad leg, the abductor muscles on that side are unable to hold up the other side of the pelvis. And so you get this tilt in the pelvis. So as they walk, they dip down. And if they've got it on both sides, then they, they look like they're kind of waddling from side to side as they're walking. So that's quite a classic gait. And if they find someone with that, uh, then you may be asked to see them in your OSCE. And so that's well worth knowing about in particular. And when they're walking, you should also comment on the fact they're using a walking aid or you, know, you could have a look at their footwear whilst they're walking. Have they got a shoe raise? And you know, these subtle things that if you pick them up will definitely score you some extra marks. Um, so that's really the gait and you know, the gait examination you can go into huge detail with. There's textbooks written on gait examination. There are labs where they put markers on you and they examine your gait in huge detail. But you don't need to do that for this. For the medical school, what you just need to do is you know, say, are they walking fast? Are they walking slower? Are they walking with a, a limp? Why might they be walking with a limp? And try and identify the problem from that. And that's, that's really as far as I would expect a medical student to get. And then the next thing is, because they're stood up, is to look at their arms with, their stand, with them standing up. And you can get them kind of stood in the anatomical position in front of you. And you can do your inspections, you can look for any muscle wasting again, look for any swellings in the hands, in the elbow, in the forearms, looking for those rheumatoid nodules that are often hidden kind of behind and out of sight from you. And you can look at you know, how they're holding their arms and comment on the position of those arms at rest. Um, if there's an obvious kind of arm that they're holding across their chest because it's really sore, for example. And then you just want to get them to do some generalized movements of their arms just to, to screen it. So the ones I was always taught was that you get the patient to put their hands behind their head. And that's a compound movement where you're getting them to move their shoulders and their elbows. And if there's a major issue with one of those joints, then that will be flagged up. You then get them to bend and straighten their elbows. And then you'd get them to um, put their palms together in a sort of praying position. Um, and then you reverse that to look at the wrist movements and then get them to make a fist and stretch their fingers out in front of you. And that will give you an idea if there's any gross pathology in the upper limbs uh, from that point of view. And then you would get them to lie down so you can examine their legs. Um, and when you're doing this, it's exactly the same thing. So you can uh, comment again on the muscle wasting, on the position of the legs. Are they holding the knee flexed because there's a fixed flexion contracture either in the hip or the knee? You know, when they lie down flat, is there a really obvious difference in the leg length that you maybe thought you saw in the gait examination? And you can comment on that again. Um, you can comment again on any you know, scars or uh, you know, signs of infection or wounds. And then you can again get them to move. So you can get them to bring their foot into dorsiflexion and into plantar flexion. And that, that's showing the ankle movements. And then they can flex and extend their, their knees. And then they can, you can get them to do a straight leg raise to see what the movements are like in their hips. And it's always worth to get the patient to do those movements as much as possible. Obviously, you can take over and test it yourself. But if you don't know what the movements are that the patient may have and you suddenly move it for them, you could cause them quite significant pain. So it's always worth getting the patient to do the active movements before you take over and do any passive moving. And then the last part of the GALS examination is the spine. You may want to change your order if you're feeling really slick and, and, and change it so that you do the spine before the legs because 
to, to really to do the spine, you want to get the patient to stand up. And again, you're examining the spine from the front, from the back and from the side. And you want to comment on the, the curvatures of the spine. So sideways on, is there any change in the lumbar lordosis, the thoracic kyphosis or the cervical lordosis? And then um, you would want to, from the back, you'd want to look for any signs of a scoliosis. Again, uh, commenting on the overall shape um, of their spine. And when you're looking at them from behind, you can get them to bend down forward, which is a forward bending test. And if they've got a subtle scoliosis, this will be exaggerated because the scoliosis, while it looks like a deformity in the, uh, that you see from the back, there's a rotational component. So as they bend forward, their spine will bend with a rotation and one of their shoulders will end up higher than the other. And that's a, a very good test that you can do as part of your gals examination to look for any um, significant scoliosis there. And then other movements of the spine, because you've already shown the, the forward flexion, is you can get them to extend their hip. And then there's lateral bending where they move one arm down the side of their leg with the spine bending down and then the other. And then you get them to look over each shoulder at you whilst you're holding their pelvis from behind. And that tests rotation uh, of the spine. And then the neck movements are chin to chest and then looking up to the sky rotating to look at each shoulder and then trying to touch the ear to the shoulder without bringing the shoulder up. Um, and those are really all the movements that you need to do as part of your gals examination. And it, once you've practiced it, you can do that really, really quickly. And if there is a significant pathology, I'm absolutely sure you'd pick it up. The problem is, is obviously there's a lot to remember with that, but the key would be to make sure that you just have a flow. If you forget one thing at an OSCE, it doesn't matter. You've got to remember that my OSCEs, for example, the pass mark was 9 out of 20. So 11 of the marks you could drop and you'd still pass. And I'm not saying you should aim for 9. You should aim for 20, obviously. But don't get distracted if you think halfway through, oh, I forgot to do this or I forgot to do that. If you have a nice flow and you're picking up the major issues as you go along, you'll be absolutely fine. Thank you so much, Chris. I think that's really helped me. Gals examination is something that I, I do forget the little bits and I do kind of beat myself up in the OSCE about it. So I do need to get better at just moving on and continuing with the examination. So do you think there are any key pathologies that people might miss in an orthopaedic OSCE? Um, not really. I mean, like I said, orthopaedic examination and diagnosis is is actually pretty easy to be honest if, if there's a, a joint that's stiff it's probably got arthritis in it if it's stiff and sore as well if there are multiple swellings in the hand with nodules in the elbows then it's probably rheumatoid arthritis and they're not going to give you really subtle difficult pathologies to try and pick up like you might get in your frcs exam where you have you know people with conditions like Charcot-Marie-Tooth or you know, post-polio syndrome and so on and so forth. The expectation isn't that you're able to you know, pick up all the you know, minutiae. And um, so really, I don't think there are key pathologies that people will miss out. I think that the, the thing that people miss or misunderstand about orthopedic uh, examination in OSCEs is that they just need to follow that simple look, feel, move, have a couple of special tests to get the marks, but not worry about it too much and just have a nice systematic approach which they can go through to in a well-practiced calm and confident manner and you'll be fine.
So if we were to be given a history taking station in an OSCE, what mm. sorts of key questions should we be focusing on and asking our simulated patient? So I think the first thing to do is think about your pain history, asking those Socrates questions such as, you know, where is it sore? How severe is it? Um, and what are the problems you're getting it from that point of view? But really what you want to do, if you want to really understand orthopedics, is you have to understand that orthopedic conditions affect how people are able to function. So, you know, understand what the symptoms are, get an understanding of what the diagnosis likely is, you know, patient presenting with a two year history of an increasingly sore hip with stiffness, difficulty getting dressed, so on and so forth, is going to be hip arthritis, most likely. But, but if you want to really show that you understand what orthopedics is all about, then I would suggest spending just a couple of extra questions understanding exactly how that affects the patient. So having that empathy, you know, what's their occupation? How does it, how does it affect them? Are they still working? Are they unable to work now because of their issue? You know, what, what is it that they want to be improved? For a lot of the patients that I see, it's just being able to play with their grandkids outside um, and giving them that sort of quality of life back. And I think that, you know, if you want to, obviously you take your standard history and you ask them about what their medical issues are and you think about how that might impact you know, potential future surgeries. But if you want to really kind of tick the box and show you understand what orthopedics is all about, like I said, I think spend a bit more time with your patient, understanding how the problem affects them as an individual. And not only will the examiners be really impressed with that, but the patient who gets to give you a mark as well will uh, also feel like, you know, you as a, as a future doctor, they'll feel quite happy with you as their doctor because you, because you care. So rather than just going through the motions and, you know, asking all the questions, um, if you just show that little bit of empathy, I think it, it, can, it can really serve you very well in an OSCE. I think sometimes a social history can be so easily overlooked and people forget to do it and ask how it affects their life. So it's really good to have that reminder. And it's quite important as well in, you know, one of our most common trauma pathologies, so hip fracture patients, the social history is often very complex. They may be in a residential home, a nursing home, they may have carers, they may have carers once a day, twice a day, four times a day. You know, their care needs are very much specific to what they ha are as an individual. And if you don't get a good understanding of what that is pre-op, then um, you're going to have to spend a lot of time trying to work it out post-op and understanding what they, you know, what they started as in terms of their ability to you know, look after themselves, etc., before they broke their hip, it gives you a much better understanding of what you can try to achieve on the ward during their period of rehab, and also think about what their discharge destination may be. So the social history for hip fracture patients is also really, really important. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to speak to us today and for doing this whole mini series on orthopaedics with us. It's been really well received so far and we've absolutely loved having you on. Thank you very much. So I hope that people have enjoyed it and obviously, you know, kind of a little bit sad that it's coming to an end. Obviously, we're going to continue working with the Unofficial Guide to Medicine and um, hopefully putting out books in the future and uh, we're going to have an orthopedics crash course day coming so i really hope as many of you can join us for that as possible we're going to tailor everything in that day to the things that you want us to teach you about so i hope uh, to see you all, all there yeah and just to plug that day a little bit more it's on the 24th of october if anyone's interested in joining for that day brilliant well thank you for 
uh, chatting with me, Lauren. I hope people are a little bit more confident with their orthopedic oskies, realize what a fantastic career orthopedics is, and uh, all the fantastic different pathologies we get to see and treat and the differences we make to people's lives. And I hope to see as many of you uh, on the wards and um, perhaps as colleagues in the future. Thank you everybody for listening. That was our last podcast in our orthopaedic mini-series with Chris, but do make sure you tune in next week where we'll be diving deeper into another speciality, which will be general practice. We advertise these podcasts on our social media, so make sure you give us a follow to keep up to date so you don't miss an episode. I'll see you next week. 